Welcome to tonight's episode of the Remso Martinez Experience. Before we get started, I want to go ahead and give a shout out to some of this episode's sponsors. From self-publishing to podcasting and passive income development, I offer ongoing self-development courses at Champion Pundit Academy, as well as one-on-one private consultations to take you from zero to hero in no time. Learn more at championpunditacademy.com. That's championpunditacademy.com. You want to know what you need more of in your life? Politics. Yeah, nobody ever said that. But if you've got to go ahead and spend money on one nonfiction book, it's got to be the ultimate clash of wisdom, awesomeness, and then obviously the politics. But why not a little bit of comedy? Why not a little bit of a memoir? Why not something that's going to make you say, hey, I actually enjoyed reading this. I laughed. I learned something in the process. Check out my book. It's an Amazon bestseller. You may have heard of it. It's Stay Away from the Libertarians. It talks about all the things you think you might know about libertarians, plus a lot of things that I bet dollars to donuts you don't know about. You can get it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble online. So go on right now. You can get it in print or ebook or Kindle or whatever you call it. Just go out and get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble online today. It's Stay Away from the Libertarians by Remso W. Martinez. Happens to be me. Hey, I'm Matt Conroy, country Americana songwriter and recording artist, and you're listening to the Remso Martinez Experience. Silly Jim Acosta. Don't you know that walls keep people out? After all, look at any home owned by a Democratic member of the Congress, and I bet dollars to donuts you will find a wall. Ladies and gentlemen, hello. Welcome once again. This is the one and only Remso Martinez Experience. I'm your host, as always, Amazon best-selling author, podcast provocateur, the pundit abundance, nobody's hero, Remso W. Martinez. Thank you so much for joining us once again on a... Another Friday. If you're in the Northern Virginia Beltway area, let me tell you, uh, the odds of it snowing are about 100%. It's going to be snowmageddon. The odds of it not snowing and being exactly the way it is are also 100%. So dealer's choice. We're all cooped up. I'm glad that you can join us. Do me a quick favor. Go ahead and follow me on Twitter. You can just find me at Remso W. Martinez. The Twitter handle is Remso4, for right now, F-O-R-V-A, Remso4VA. Follow me on Twitter. Let's have a conversation. Today, we are also live streaming this episode to Periscope, since I've been ignoring Periscope lately. You, you know, there's a there's a bit of a difference between live streaming and podcasting. And let me tell you, and this is why today we're actually, you know, doing this episode live. Um, if you're hearing this, you know, later past 2.40 p.m. Eastern time, then obviously it's not live for you. You, you get how that works. But um, there, there's a very distinct difference between when you're doing something that's live and when you're doing something that's pre-recorded. When you're doing something that's pre-recorded, you can master every little detail. You can eliminate every blemish, every stutter, every embarrassing thing. You can make yourself sound better. You can make other people sound worse. With live streaming, you have to be on your toes like every second. It's like you're walking around, you know, 
uh, glass with blood on it, AIDS-infected blood around eggshells, which if you touch it, you also happen to step on the crack on the ground and it'll break your mother's back. So automatically, when you're alive, you know, the, the struggle is real. But there's a certain ethic to it. A uh, good friend of mine, Ford Fisher from News to Share, uh, good, good friend. He actually goes and he uh, lectures to college courses in the fields of journalism, and he talks about the ethics of live streaming. And something that he told me one time is, you know, I, I try and consider myself, you know, kind of not necessarily the forefront of the live streaming movement, but really an advocate for live streaming journalism specifically because you can't make up anything. What you see is what you get, and what you see there is how things actually occur in the moment, and it's raw, and there's a truth to it, there's a taste to it, there's a flavor to it, a smell to it that you cannot get with just regular pre-recorded footage. And I totally understand that, um, and that is a that that is a struggle that, you know, a, as a documentary filmmaker that I've had to understand. How much do we leave in? How much do we take out? What do the people want to see? What should they see? That's a very big, important thing to really understand when you're looking at the news aggregates where you get your information from. How much of it do you think is really edited? The other night when the president was going and giving his um, immigration speech right before Chuck and Nancy gave the angry parents lecture after that, what you had was you had this one Seattle uh, television station uh, just this morning, I don't quite know the full specifics of it, but this entire network for this local community was closed by, I don't know if it was NBC or Fox. I'll, I'll try and get the info later and post it. But the entire network is shut down because somebody was purposely editing the footage of the president's speech to make him look stupid. And basically, I mean, it's just him stuttering and fumbling and you can watch it and you can tell this is obviously not real life. Now, from what I was able to get from a few of the sources I saw this morning as I was, you know, just jumping around the, ar the articles I saw. I'm sorry, I don't remember more of the information. I promise I'll get to you soon. Um, there, there is a little bit of a delay when you're sending live footage to a station. There's a little bit of a delay. So that way, some, if somebody curses for an example, they can go ahead and they can censor that before it reaches the full public. Um, this person was really messing around with that. And because of that, the entire network has had to suffer. And, uh, you know, that that is fake news. Like, there are many definitions to what fake news is, but that is fake news in its fullest, most died-down elementary form, the fabrication of facts. And uh, it, it really hurts a lot of people. And, you know, an, an entire network has been taken down because of this. I bet there were good people at this affiliate. But now, I mean, what what's going on? What's going on? It's it's completely ridiculous. Um, let me see. There's an article I want to find that's actually going to lead us into our main topic today. It's from Reason Magazine. It's discussing a lot of the issues with, you know, people believing fake news or not. I can't find it on their website. Let me go ahead and pull it up on Facebook. See, folks, this is live, and this is what happens when you didn't pull up everything sooner. So I do apologize for that. Let's go ahead and find this article right now. Oh, okay. The fake news epidemic was dot, 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 fake news. Now, I know who wrote this. 
I know they're slant, but I have not read it. So just like this episode is being recorded live and being broadcasted live through Periscope, we're going to go ahead and read this article a little bit. Um, it's by Elizabeth Nolan Brown at Reason Magazine, and she says, Most social media users still know bullshit when they see it, a new study suggests. In a study of social media behavior during the 2016 election, more than 90% of their sample, quote, shared no stories from fake news domains, end quote, a trio of researchers reports in Science Advances. The study has been getting a good deal of media attention, mainly for the parts that confirm people's biases. Conservatives were more likely to share articles from fake news domains, states the study abstract. On average, users over 65 shared nearly seven times as many articles from fake news domains as the youngest age group. Conservatives uh, come up with a caveat, though. In the 2016 election, in 2016, fake news domains were largely pro-Trump in orientation. So it's not necessarily that conservatives are more susceptible than moderates or liberals to propaganda. It could just be that there was more propaganda aimed at them. The research team, Andrew Guess of Princeton, Andrew Nagler from New York University, and Joshua Tucker of New York University, considered that the possibility that older people were more likely to be Trump fans. But they found the age effect remains statistically significant when controlling for ideology and other demographic attributes. Older liberals shared a lot of fake news, too. A common denominator in many visits to hoax articles was scrolling through Facebook. The network appears to be much more in common than other platforms before visits to fake news articles, the study found. While much has been made over Russian-backed bots and ads promoting propaganda content, the reach and influence of such misinformation attempts may have been greatly overstated. The researchers say that far-fetched say it's far-fetched to suggest that fake news, which they define as fake or misleading content intentionally dressed up to look like news articles, often for the purpose of generating ad revenue, had a strong impact on the election outcome. And I'll go ahead and include this article um, in the show notes for today's episode, which, remember, you can get the show on iTunes, Stitcher, um, Anchor. <coughs> see? See? You get to hear me cough live. <coughs> <coughs> I will be editing that part out. <laughs> so basically, um, uh, I'll, I'll add the rest of the article link in the show notes, but I, I do take a little bit of an issue with what she claims. She's specifically saying that's coming from fake news domains. They're primarily targeting people through uh, social media. My problem with that is that that really does ignore a lot of the fake news that really did strike the definition, and she doesn't include that at all. Uh, I know that her bias is left-leaning, but what we don't consider is the prime example. What was the main target of fake news coming from the Trump base? CNN. Go back to the Obama administration. CNN acted as the Politburo, the Pravda, for the Obama administration. And there's one person who you can very much thank for turning CNN. <coughs> Ooh, sorry. Oh, now my throat sounds better. Ooh, okay, now we're good. For turning CNN into what it is today. And his name was Ben Rhodes. He was national security advisor for President Obama. You may know him. He was a sci-fi fiction writer. And he was the man that drafted the plan for the Iran deal. 
And what Ben Rhodes in uh, his recent book um, described was he essentially laughs at a lot of these networks, primarily CNN, MSNBC was also one of them, and these journalists who basically took their words for it. What they did was they eliminated the foreign office reliability that a lot of these networks had overseas. And essentially what they said was, here, you're just going to get all the information from me and all the information from me is going to be what's true because you could trust me, right? You like us. So we're on your side. What Ben Rhodes did was he created an entire echo chamber with the Iran deal that essentially, as he put it, he even admits to it, created a giant lie in order to get the bill passed in the Senate. That's one example of fake news, because what you had was you had the media, which is supposed to be a watchdog on government, go after people that were going up against their sources narrative. Now, who was their source? It was Ben Rhodes. Last I checked, you're not supposed to be buddy-buddy and friends of the people you're supposed to be covering. Nonetheless, just take their word for it. During the Hillary Clinton email scandal, CNN and other left left-wing organizations just largely ignored what was actually going on when Hillary was hiding servers in bathrooms and destroying them with hammers. They were saying it was a it was, you know, nothing. Nothing bad had happened even though she had broken numerous federal laws in terms of information sharing. But hey, they wanted Hillary to win. You know this because many of CNN's producers and board members were open donors to the Clinton campaign in 2016. It was explicit. It's open source. It's right there. You cannot hide it. There, there are so many other numerous examples, but, you know, fake news isn't just fake articles from fake news sites. It's omission. It's sticking to things that you know are fake regardless of the facts. And sometimes, much like this local outlet, which was distorting the president's live speech, sometimes it's just outright fabrication. This is why the American people were willing to trust Trump and are still willing to trust him when he calls out the fake news and says that the media is against him. Because just like Jim Acosta, who's up there in the White House press, press room, and he's actually attacking the president and fighting him, saying, oh, the immigrants aren't storming the border and everything else. It's like, Jim, your job is to ask questions. Your job isn't to just constantly go and attack the president. This is why they don't trust you, because you say you're an objective journalist, but you're not. Now, if Jim Acosta just came out with his biases, I'd be more than willing to actually listen to him because now I can see that he's trying to be truthful. But that is an issue. The, and this leads me to the primary topic that I want to go ahead and discuss today. It's this outlying peripheral thing that we all understand. There is no objective journalism left. And I don't believe that objective journalism is even a thing anymore. I don't, I don't believe it ever was a thing, honestly. I think it was a lie we told ourselves. Much like, oh, we always want the most experienced person to be president. No, we don't. America doesn't like experienced people. If that was the case, we wouldn't have elected Reagan. We wouldn't have elected Bill Clinton. We wouldn't have elected Barack Obama. And we cer not, certainly would not have elected Donald Trump. These are the lies we tell ourselves over and over again, and sometimes they're generational, but they stick out. One of those lies being we want objective journalists. My, fa my favorite journalist of all time is probably Hunter S. Thompson. 
Thompson was vulgar. Thompson was, uh, you know, a left winger. But I never doubted his sincerity. Same thing goes for Anthony Bourdain. I think I've learned more from Anthony Bourdain's various shows on Food Network, the Travel Channel, and CNN than any other person. But I knew his bias, and I never felt like he was trying to show me anything other than what he was seeing. One of, and, you know, sadly, you know, uh, Thompson and Bourdain had many life struggles. Thompson was fired from numerous outlets throughout his life. We often forget the struggles he had. And uh, Bourdain often fought with networks over what the places he could cover and the content he could show. And, you know, the thing is, like, they were honest. They were honest journalists. They really did want to show a story to their audience and try and get, you know, just show their audience the facts. And, yeah, they'll throw their opinion in there, but it drives the story. It keeps people interested. It shows the raw human nature of what's going on. Let me know your bias so that way I can go ahead and determine what's what i'm seeing for myself i thank you for that at least if you let me know what you're really thinking thompson much like uh bourdain and vice versa they they both died of suicide um you know a lot of personal things but you know also their careers really did drive them to that point where they saw no other option of escape and we lost two very you know beautiful human beings because of that I do think that there's a third pillar in the Hunter S. Thompson gonzo journalism field that goes ignored quite often, and that is um, Charlie LaDuff. He's worked for the left wing in New York Times. He's worked for the right wing at Fox, and he uh, wrote a book called Detroit, an American Autopsy. I highly recommend it. He recently came out with a book called Shit Show. Now, LaDuff is a Pulitzer Prize winner. LaDuff, much like... Bourdain and much like Thompson, they, um, I mean, they, they put themselves in the story and they take the, the reader and the listener and the viewer along with them to really show them the gritty nature of the world in which they're seeing. So that way we have a much better understanding of the news, which we're trying to internalize. And, you know, as an independent journalist, I've, I've had this struggle I've had this struggle. It could be very unrewarding and, un, you know, it could be very thankless sometimes, but you know, it's worth it at the end of the day. And sometimes you have to know and to just admit, you know, I've done my job, but sometimes things th- things can take you down a path you don't expect. Where is LaDuff? Because unlike, um, you know, Bourdain and Thompson, you know, God forbid, he hasn't killed himself. He's still alive and kicking. But there is an article uh, that was up at the uh, Weekly Standard. The Weekly Standard is, as we spoke about a couple weeks ago, it's dead, but they still have their whole archive up. This was written by Matt Labash, and the title, which I, I will include this article in the show notes, like every other article I always mention, it's called A Little Bit of Real People. It's by Matt Labash at the Weekly Standard. And it's about LaDuff and what he's been doing since he left the world of journalism and where he's at right now. So I'll go ahead and read this to you. And this came out in May 2018. And from what I've seen, and LaDuff does have a podcast, the No Bullshit News, um, that's that's really his outlet now. He hasn't done much writing, but I do hear that he is working on another book. So let's get started. Charlie LaDuff anticipated all the problems that Trump's election had made plain to the rest of us. Then he fell into the hole himself in Detroit. Nothing ever good starts with Detroit. <laughs> let's get started. The last time I sat in the American Coney Island diner with my old compadre, Charlie LaDuff, it's hard to remember precisely what we were doing. Maybe drinking beer. 
drinking always being on the itinerary during visits, as Charlie believes in upholding the sacred rights of our news-gathering forebearers. Or perhaps we were eating Coney dogs, since that's what people do at Detroit's premier hot dog emporium, where proprietary franks are served on homemade steamer buns of chili mustard onions, always in that order, a sacrosanct chili dog liturgy. What I do remember is that it was 2008 and things were different. Back then, Charlie used to hold court at Coney Isle at the Coney, filming an online show for the Detroit News called Hold the Onions. Now at 52, he is more likely to be asked to hold the onions himself as he's working there. Not as a journalist, but as an employee, vacuuming the chessboard floor, shining the faux brass, doing the books, swabbing the grease fryers, but I'm getting ahead. A decade ago, I was here to write an elegy for dying Detroit. Spoiler alert, it's still alive. I hung with demoralized firemen who'd just lost a buddy under a collapsed roof in, an arse, in the arson capital of the country. They complained of ladders being stolen off their trucks, food being stolen off the firehouse table while they were out on calls. E one even lamented that his car was stolen at their fallen comrade's wake. I went to Motown's old studio with the sole legend and city councilwoman Martha Reeves, who told me of a time a mugger swiped her purse and dragged her 500 yards when she couldn't free her hand from the strap. I met a homeless gravedigger peddling used clothes in the street. He deliberately slept under a bridge with lots of traffic so he wouldn't get thrown off an overpass as he had been a few months prior. It was the usual Detroit joyride. I saw the city through the prism of its bard, Charlie LaDuff, who after a decade-long run as a feature writer at the New York Times, he had willingly punched out of the majors and headed back to the minors, returning to his hometown to work as a metro reporter for the ever-thinner Detroit News. At the Times, Charlie's beat had been covering what he called the hole, overlooked people in forgotten places. He manned the lobster shift at Burger King and got himself smuggled over the border with Mexican migrants. While readers scarfed down his copy, editors blanched. One even told him it was problematic that all he seemed to cover were losers. Charlie figured he was in good company. Having long ago anticipated the problems that the 2008 crash, the dissipating middle class, and the Trumpian middle finger to the establishment would eventually make clear for the rest of us. Charlie knew he wasn't some deranged Cassandra, but more attuned to the news than his editors. He told his boss, quote, the country's 80% losers and growing every day. With that, he turned in his walking papers and went home. In Detroit, nobody begrudged his documenting the wreckage, since wreckage seemed to be mostly what's left. As firefighter Mike Nevin, one of Charlie's recurring subjects, told me of a place that was once the incubator of working-class stability. Hear the sirens? That's all day. This is a city where the sirens never stop. It's like a forgotten secret. It's like a lost city. Charlie sat in a broken chair in a half-empty newsroom, depopulated by layoffs. But as the lost city correspondent, he wrote like he was, an av like he was avenging a death. In a way, he was. It seemed like everyone knew he was falling into the hole. 
The auto jobs had left town for the suburbs or Mexico. Foreclosed, burnt, and abandoned buildings were everywhere, hurting a guy's eyes who grew up in a working-class neighborhood, the son of a flower shop-owning mom who sported a raccoon coat. One of Charlie's brothers worked for a crack dealer named Death Cat. His sister had become a part-time hooker and died throwing herself from some crazy's car. His niece died of a heroin overdose shortly thereafter. He took it all out on the corrupt public servants, of which Detroit's always had a par- uh, paratic surfet. He wrote of, de- of dead flight, the living exhuming their bodies to take them to the suburbs where the cemeteries were safer. He found a body at the bottom of an elevator shaft in an abandoned building frozen in ice as rune crashers played pickup hockey nearby. The man had been there for weeks, his legs jutting out like popsicle sticks. Charlie wrote an acclaimed best-selling book, Detroit and American Autopsy, in 2013. GQ named him Madman of the Year. He remade himself as a TV star, first for the local Fox affiliate, then roaming the country. He pumped out one-of-a-kind pieces of frenetic performance art under the title The Americans, which were syndicated to Fox stations across the nation many of them becoming viral video sensations. He might eat cat food on air to show how disgraceful Detroit's Meals on Wheels programs had become. The city was procuring grub grub from a prison contractor. He squats in a squatter's house or take a bath in someone else's while waiting for the cops to take their sweet old time after the resident called the police. He'd hit a golf golf ball all the way across the Detroit Badlands, one drive after another, to illustrate the sprawling emptiness and talk to those living between its cracks. He also blanketed the country, riding with the Klan in South Carolina and Bundy militiamen in Nevada, paddling around the Rio Grande in a blow-up kayak, wearing a Stars and Stripes banana hammock to catch the attention of the coyotes, transporting migrants to the land on jet skis virtually unmolested. He was still minding the hole. People used to dismiss or ignore it, but now even the pointy heads and professional gas bags were declaring that more of us were falling into it as the middle class was no longer a major, a majority for the first time in over four decades. Even as big cities grew shiny, happy, and gentrified, Urban poverty was ripping into the suburbs like a rock thrown into a pond. Charlie's method has always been controlled madness, a method which pays dividends. But the gonzo whirlwind he creates, sucking everyone into his vortex, has always been ungirded by moral seriousness. I'm going to go ahead and um, just skip a little bit of this and just remember... Like everything else I talk about, I will be including this in the show notes, so don't worry. I'm going to skip a paragraph here. Where is it? Okay. Right after Trump's election, he swept the family photos off his desk into a box and quit his well-paying TV gig. He cut a pilot for A&E, but the proposed docuseries didn't get picked up. He drops occasional columns for a local site, Deadline Detroit. Though, he left me wondering if he'd fallen into the hole himself. Several weeks ago, we were on the phone having a vinegar session of journalists' favorite subjects. When he broke the news, you could always come work with me. Where are you working? I asked, unclear of his current arrangements. 
At the Coney, he said, for about a year now. You're kidding, I said. Is, is it a stunt? Nope, that's what my wife asked, Charlie said. You never told me, I replied, somewhat hurt. You never asked, he said. Besides, a man's got pride. And indeed he does. He's too proud to wear the paper hat while working at the Coney, nor will he work the register. I'm not a greeter, he says. But otherwise, he's all in as a handyman and troubleshooter for Grace Caros, the third-generation owner, who regards Charlie as not just an employee, but a friend. Even more so since, when he was still a TV reporter, he chased after and took down a thug twice his size who boosted Kiros's cell phone. Charlie puts in several days a week at the Coney. He putters up early in the morning in his matte black 77 Cadillac Fleetwood, um, wearing motorcycle boots and ancient Karat coveralls, splotched and stained and air-conditioned with the half, <laughs> with the ass half ripped out. I'm sorry, it's just funny. Um, he tells me he inherited them from a firefighter when he was covering the Manhattan firehouse after 9-11. I'm going to skip a little bit down here. It's spring cleaning at the Coney, and Charlie needs to clean out the grease behind the fryers before the roaches, now thawed, decide to wait, take up the residence. Though the Coney stays open 24-7, early construction crews and last night's drunks are pretty much the only ones wanting chili dogs this early. It's a good time to shut the chow line down and let Charlie do his work. And I'm going to go ahead and skip a little bit of this paragraph, go on to the next one to keep the story moving. The salary is paltry, and Charlie mainly took the gig for the health care the Coney offers. His hardship is gentleman's hardship. His craftsman house out in Pleasant Ridge by the zoo is paid off. His wife is studying for a Ph.D. in counseling. His daughter goes to a parochial school. But when he walked away from his well-compensated TV gig, he lost the family's insurance and was in for some serious sticker shock. I asked him why he left TV and get a lot of answers over the course of a couple days. For starters, his Fox superiors pressuring him to lay off Trump and certain local politicians now that everyone's celebrating the new Detroit. Which, as Charlie repeatedly says, it's bullshit. Sure, downtown looks spiffier than ever with the billions of investment that poured in, but if you dig, the new Detroit looks a lot like the old one. Uh, skipping another paragraph, Charlie also cites as reasons for checking out of his TV gig that things like getting screwed on expenses were occurring, having to front the travel costs with his camera crew and then getting nickel and dimed by super by superiors for saying ordering nine beers while interviewing a Times Square pimp. Finally, he says, sighing, he got tired of the monkey show, the fake news and how the split screen has multiplied into an octagon screen of talking heads, house cats who never leave the studio. A culture of nothingness pervades TV, even when the country is genuinely ailing. But he also admits he's gotten tired. He tells me one day in his kitchen drinking black coffee in front of a cabinet upon which are posted the beatitudes. Too many bodies, he says. Too many broken hearts. Old ladies living in their vans because they got put out. People washing their babies in the sinks in Flint. I mean, you know, at some point, it's just... And he pauses. He wanted to reassess. 
put it all in some kind of order, which he's done in a new book appropriately titled Shit Show, The Country's Collapsing and the Ratings Are Great. He sweeps the country, making connections from the black rage in the streets of Ferguson to white rage everywhere else. He hangs with the Flint Trailer Park denizens who've left high, who have been left high and dry by the government and the auto plants that turned the city into a ghost town. But he also hangs with Mexicans on the other side of the border, where the auto plants went, where they work for pennies on the dollar and yearn to ride the coyote jet skis across the Rio Grande to try and get a piece of the American dream. Which so many Americans assume has fled south. The book is riveting and an important document of our time. Charlie admits he misses the life. I miss it all. I miss shitty airports. I miss country roads. I miss I miss Baton Rouge at midnight. The only thing open is that fish fry liquor store. I miss the action. I miss saying something. I miss the bullhorn. It's the best job ever invented. But he's okay sitting back, reassessing, figuring out what's next. Meanwhile, he has to work. He has to do work at the Coney, making Karis happy, as it means his daughter has health care. And you can go ahead and read the rest of that fantastic article before someone actually manages to like shut down the National Review website. Uh, they had some good articles, folks. I'm not gonna completely crap on them, but this is ultimately it: the struggle of truth. The, the struggle of going out and searching real stories instead of the manufactured ones. People really go out and they, uh, they attack, like, you know, Bravo and E! News for just celebrity culture. But who made that? We did. I think the best explanation for why the 24-7 news cycle is as terrible as it is has nothing necessarily to do with even the expansion of social network. But I think the film that did it was uh, Anchorman 2 where uh, you got Will Ferrell and the others, and you know they, they talk about in the scene where they go to the first 24-7 news network, they talk about what was going on with a, a car chase. And you know at that point, news networks in the 70s, 80s, whenever that film takes place, they, they were not going to cover a car chase. But Ron Burgundy, in order to get at his wife at another network who was interviewing Yester Arafat, says, go ahead and turn all the screens on to cover the car chase. And next thing you know, according to the film, that they covered that for like hours and hours, and the entire nation was just riveted by a car chase. There's a car chase every day. Not literally, but figuratively. There's breaking news every second. In fact, I don't think the breaking news ticker tape ever leaves. There are people like Oliver Darcy out there who aren't even journalists, but they're just organized hitmen. There's Rebecca Klein at Huffington Post who says she's an education reporter but goes after people that she doesn't like. The list goes on. Jim Acosta being one of them. I respect Rachel Maddow because she's never called herself a journalist. Yeah, she has terrible views. She's a liar and a pretty terrible person. You know, I bet her kids and her husband, if she's if she's married and has kids, loves her. But at least she says she's a commentator. She's not like Charlie Rose, who used to get mad at me on Twitter when I was at Newsbusters. Said he was a journalist, but was really a commentator. And then Charlie got the boot for being a serial sexual harasser. Or who else? Oh, Matt Lauer, who said he was a journalist, but was really just a pundit pinheaded commentator. And then he got the boot for turning his office into a rape dungeon. And then there's people like Chris Cuomo, who say they're a journalist. 
and then go after Ben Carson when he says that Hillary Clinton is an Alinskyite follower and he's yelling at Ben Carson as if someone just insulted his mother. You see, those people survive because they're willing to do anything to survive, and anything often comes at the price of your integrity. It comes at the price of what's real. It comes at the price of your own ethics, your soul. You have people like Thompson, Bourdain, Leduff, and many others who have tried to keep up the fight. And often for that, it comes at a price. When you have to chase the ratings, you have to chase the clicks. Do we dare even call it journalism anymore? Look at most reporters and other people that call themselves journalists. How many of them have actually ever investigated a story? How many of them actually went out to the scene of something and actually tried to cover it? Far few out there actually have. They're not journalists. They're not reporters. They are over-glorified, overpaid, overcompensated vloggers, bloggers, and the such. It's quite sad. In the age of the citizen journalist, that's what was once looked kindly upon, is now looked down upon as the citizen journalists out there have made enemies of the mainstream media. We see this far too often. But what will we do? Who will we reward? I don't know about you, but I don't even watch cable news anymore. I watch Tucker on Fox. You know, I, I will admit to that. But, you know, I mainly watch the clips online. I don't really watch a full show. That's about it. You just can't expect me to take these people who have been caught lying so many times and expect them to actually tell the truth, to go investigate a story. I think I watched more CNN in the last year than I did Fox, and it was because of men like Bourdain. Men who weren't lecturing me, but were taking me on the journey. Men which weren't trying to divide the country, but wanted America to come together at the dinner table. What do we do in the absence of those men? I have an article coming out for Anne's Magazine discussing journalism after Bourdain. No one's quick to fill the shoes. No one knows how. We've been indoctrinated into thinking that this scourge of fake news is real. Even then, we don't know what the real definition of fake news is. Do we trust anything, or do we just trust our echo chambers? Are we willing to listen to other opinions and consider for a fact that we might be wrong about something? I don't know anymore. I've struggled. I almost hit it in the big leagues of media and journalism. And I got kicked out of my ass. I almost made it big in talk radio. And I got kicked out of my ass. Why do I keep coming back? Because let me be honest, up until very recently, I didn't even know I wanted to come back to a microphone. I'm looking right next to me at my old studio, and it's essentially a carcass of itself. Yes, I do my show The Witching Hour with producer Ryan, but at least then I can tell you that dealing with ghosts and the paranormal is often less scary than dealing with the actual news of politics and the corrupt world around us. At least we know somebody won't be coming after us and trying to make our lives an absolutely living hell because we're not touching something too sensitive. Yeah, we're touching taboo topics, but it's a whole different ballpark. We're better as a nation from men like Thompson, Bourdain, and Leduff. But sadly, even Hunter S. Thompson knew that we were consuming him for all the wrong reasons. We were looking him at him as the caricature cartoon character and less of the journalist and writer. He killed himself. 
Bourdain was being pulled in too many directions. He didn't have the opportunity to seek the help he needed. Maybe he did, but we'll never know. His ashes are far gone. The eulogies and after-death letters of sympathy and tears are all over. That lasts a whole five minutes. But his life runs in syndication. His legacy is on the screen. What will we take from that? And then men like Leduff. And Leduff still has his podcast, The No Bullshit News. But you didn't even know about it. I bet you didn't even know who Leduff was before today. Maybe. Maybe you did. He's a lot bigger than I am. But there's always that person that's like, Remso, I have no clue what you're talking about. I don't want to beg, but I am going to ask you to do this. Share this episode with a friend. Let them come to their own opinion. Have a conversation about it. Send it to as many people you know who are are like-minded and want to seek truth like you do. And if you're ever feeling a little bit generous, know that you can go ahead and click on the show notes and you can support the show for just 99 cents a month. It's not even a full dollar. That will keep me coming back with more information. I'll cover the news that no one else does, give the opinions that aren't necessarily popular, and investigate the stories that need investigating. I'd like to thank my friends at And Magazine for helping me and allowing me to actually contribute good articles. Had three headline stories this past week. They've been incredibly generous. But at the end of the day, only we have the power to keep this going. Only truth itself knows what truth is. And as far as the fake news spread... There will be people there to try and stand in front of it. Athwart history, not just get run over by it. Anyway, folks, I'm Remso W. Martinez. This is the Remso Martinez Experience. So long, take care, have a great weekend. I will be back Monday. So long, folks, I'll be back in a bit. Bye. Bye.